Well, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is, we consider this picture of penitent prayer. Now, God-honoring prayer is grace-derived and gospel-driven communion with God. Prayer is a graced gift given by God for the maturation and the ministry of the believer. There are many types of prayer in the Bible which, as we see them and study them, we learn how to pray in a manner that pleases God and praises God. This morning, we look at a specific type of prayer, I believe one of the clearest pictures of this type of prayer, it is penitent prayer. Now that word penitent literally means repentant, or you could say contrite prayer. Psalm 51, I believe, is the greatest prayer of personal repentance in the Bible. Everyone on the planet Everyone here this morning is called to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation. And all of us here this morning who are genuine believers should be constantly repenting for restored fellowship as the Lord himself taught in the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6. Forgive us of our sins as we are commanded even by the Apostle John in 1 John 1.9. Therefore, we have much to learn from this picture of penitent prayer as given by David in Psalm 51. You follow along silently now as I read this passage aloud. Hear the word of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in the right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. 
some background will be helpful before we jump into this passage this morning. We are in, as you can see, the Psalms, which in their entirety were written over approximately about a thousand year period. Psalm 90 seems likely to be written around 1400 BC, and Psalm 126 likely written around 450 BC. There are 150 psalms written individually that were eventually collected into five specific books. We refer to all of the books as the Psalter, and Psalm 51 is located in Book 2, which has 31 psalms in it, which were likely collected around the 7th century B.C. The Hebrews referred to the psalms as the book of praises, and the Hebrew title for psalms means, and I quote, to make a jubilant sound, unquote. Thus, the psalms, they served as the worship manual for the people of God. So the psalms were, in large part, prayers, petitions, and praises put to music that was to be sung, sung so that the congregation could be taught and could memorize and could ingrain sound doctrine that might be taught and enjoyed by God's people. Now, as we come to this specific psalm, you need to know that this was written by David. David, who wrote more psalms than any other writer. At last count, in my estimation, I think David wrote about 75 of the 150 psalms. That's half. You can see this reality in 2 Samuel 23.1 where David is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. As you look down there on the Bible in front of you, you likely will have a superscription above verse 1. The superscription is clear that this psalm was written after David was confronted by Nathan regarding David's sin with Bathsheba. The historical context that sets up this psalm is found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. There you see David sin willfully, going after another man's wife, Uriah's wife. Her name is Bathsheba. David sinned grievously in many ways, multiple times over many months, likely at least nine months or longer before he is confronted by Nathan and repents. Sadly, David not only steals another man's wife, but that man was deeply loyal to David, being one of David's mighty men. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 23, 39, and 1 Chronicles eleven forty one. Uriah was that man's name, though a Hittite seems to have a Jewish name which points to the fact that Uriah was likely a God-fearer. Uriah laid his life down on the line more than once to protect David. And now David instead seeks to take this man's life. But by God's grace, the prophet Nathan is sent to confront David and awaken David from his rebellion, his vile deeds, and his sinful blindness. Nathan is faithful. And Nathan does what no one else on the planet at that time would have wanted to do, confront the king of Israel. But Nathan does it. And by God's sovereign grace, David repents upon hearing the word of God. Now, you need to know that I believe what Alan read this morning, Psalm 32, 
correlates to what we have here in Psalm 51. I believe both of them are dealing with the same event of David's sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 32, though, is more didactic and doctrinally driven as it deals with the results of forgiveness through repentance. However, don't miss this. Psalm 51 is more emotional and raw as David pours out his heart to the Lord. Psalm 51 is the most personal psalm ever written by David. This psalm deals not with the results of forgiveness, but with the penitent request for forgiveness. Psalm 32 is written after the fact. Psalm 51 is written more contemplatively as David reflects on the depth of his sin and his desperate need for mercy and forgiveness from God. Thus, this psalm has much to teach us. It has much to teach us in why and how we must turn to God alone when we sin. It also instructs us in what, or should I say, who we should be seeking when we repent. And it also teaches us how we should be thinking about our sin when we confess it. Do not miss it. We have this psalm not really to highlight David's sin, but to highlight God's undeserved mercy clearly pleaded for in David's genuine repentance. Therefore, you with me? I assume that all of us open to this text as if it's our first time reading it. That's important, right? We come with fresh eyes to the scriptures. And I know that most of you have read this psalm many times, and that's one of your greatest barriers to the text. So I speak as if this is our first time coming to it, giving all the context, provoking us to think rightly and humbly before it. But I also know this about me, that I cannot preach this entire psalm in an hour. And I think I have an hour. I hope I have an hour. There you go. I cannot preach this entire psalm that way and do it justice. Oh, I could preach it, trust me, but I would not do it justice. So all I want to do this morning is focus on the first six verses, which really gives us the heart of the confession in this psalm. I can tell you, you can break this entire psalm down, all 19 verses like this. There's really four parts to it. I'll give them to you. So I'll essentially preach the psalm for you really quickly here. The first part you can see in verses 1 and 2, and it literally is the cry of the penitent. You see that most clearly in verses 1 and 2. And then starting in verses 3 through verse 6, you have the confession of the penitent. And then starting in verse 7 and going through verse 12, you have what I like to call the call of the penitent, where David calls upon God to do for David what David can't do himself. And it is encouraging. And then lastly, you have the consecration of the penitent in verses 13 to 19. But as I said, we're just going to look at two. We're just going to look at two this morning, two parts of this penitent prayer the cry of the penitent in verses 1 and 2, and the confession of the penitent in verses 3 to 6. Maybe, just maybe, I'll be invited back one day and maybe I can finish it. Finish work I've left undone. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how this goes. The first part of this repentant prayer we see in verses 1 and 2 is this reality of the cry, the cry of the penitent. 
Here in these two verses, we get the first, an overarching plea for forgiveness and restoration. David is passionately beseeching, and here you go, he's begging Yahweh for mercy as he cries out in anguish over his rebellion against the Lord. These two verses set up, really, the rest of the psalm as what David really pleads here gets repeated and further clarified throughout the rest of the prayer. David's cry is clear. David's cry is compelling as it instructs us in the way of true repentance, which is always the way of the broken and contrite heart. Notice with me how the text highlights three aspects of this cry of the penitent. First, we can see it is a desperate cry, a desperate cry. The psalm begins with David crying out in desperation as he begs God for mercy. The form and meaning of the Hebrew word here highlights the great urgency in David's plea as he understands, here you go, he is helpless and hopeless unless God shows compassion and favor on him. This word translated here as mercy carries the idea of showing compassion and favor, gracious favor on one who does not deserve it. David is destitute in himself of anything that would draw anything other than God's judgment. So he begs, he pleads in desperation for undeserved grace from God. All true repentance, dear loved ones, all true repentance will always be categorized by a deep sense of desperation as the penitent understands that all he can do is cast himself upon the mercy of God alone. God is both judge and the only hope for the penitent sinner. So that sinner runs to God alone to rescue him from God himself. Psalm 102 says so clearly that God, he regards, he listens to, he listens to the prayer of the destitute, but he does not listen to the prayer of the arrogant. The word destitute in Psalm 102, 17 means what? Naked. It means to be naked before the Lord in your sin. You realize you have nothing left but to plead and beg for mercy from God. And that is what we see here with David. What we see here in this desperate cry is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, where it is the poor in spirit who are the blessed ones. Meaning those who see they are spiritually naked, spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt. So as they have nothing to offer God except their sin. Thus they cry out in utter desperation to God. And they alone are the ones who are blessed by God. We not only see a desperate cry, but number two, we see it is a character-driven cry. The prayer continues in verse 1, and it teaches us how David's desperate cry was ultimately driven by the good and gracious character of God. David knows he is bankrupt of anything good or worthy to plead before God. David knows there is nothing within himself that will turn God away from his judgment and wrath. So David pleads the only thing, the only thing he can plead. He cries out to the goodness of God. 
You can clearly see it in the text as David's cry depends on God's goodness alone. See the phrase, according to? In the text, this translates the Hebrew preposition, which helps us see that what David pleads for, mercy, this mercy is utterly and completely dependent on God's character, not David's. And notice what characteristic of God David points to. God's steadfast love. This is that great Hebrew term, hesed, that carries the idea of Yahweh's devoted, persevering, loyal, covenant-driven love. The hesed of Yahweh is not simply loving kindness, dear loved ones, but it is this loyal, never-ending, never Stopping, always satisfying, always rich, always full, always enough loyal love of God. This is a great Hebrew term. And it is a great, even greater characteristic of our God. Why does David appeal to God's steadfast love rooted in God's good, eternal character? Here's why, dear loved ones. Because David knows that God's loyal love is greater than David's sin. He goes to the loyal, eternal, never-ending love of God, born out in what? The eternal covenant that God had made with David. The covenant that could not be broken, which was stronger than David's sin. So he doesn't plead his own goodness. He doesn't plead anything within himself. He begs God for mercy according to the good promise of God. The promise of God was more powerful, was far greater than David's wicked sin. David's covenant relationship with God and God's loyal love as promised in his covenant, it drives his cry for mercy. Not only that, but David pleads according to the, you see it in the text, tender compassion of God. The word translated here Abundant mercies carries the idea of being moved inwardly, being moved in the, in the bowels of mercy. If you have the King James Version, and you know that phrase, being moved in your inner gut. And David is appealing to the, the tender mercy of God to look upon David in his helplessness and hopelessness because you understand that David sins intentionally and there was no offering sacrifice that could be given for an intentional, high-handed, defiant sin like David had committed. That's why David says, there's no offering. There's no sacrifice I can give to you. There's no way for me to cover this sin in the law. There's only hope in the character and the goodness and the mercy of God himself. The law will not save David. The law will not help David. Only the loyal love and the tender mercy of the Lord is all that David has. And so like a tender mother who has deep compassion on her children, especially the child in her womb, so God is marked by abundant, tender mercy towards all repentant sinners. And don't miss it. David's cry is driven by both God's promise his covenant with David and God's person, his tender mercy, compassion 
toward repentant sinners. His covenantal promise of love and God's personal character of deep compassion, that's what drives his cry for mercy. This cry of David for mercy, it's a desperate cry. It's a character-driven cry, but we can also see next, it's a comprehensive cry. Look at the text. You can see David now pouring out his heart even further. It is a, it is a full repentance. It is a comprehensive repentance. Or you could say it's an exhaustive cry to Yahweh for mercy. In a few short words at the end of verse 1 and through the rest of verse 2, David gives three urgent requests for help coupled with three all-inclusive descriptions of his sin and why he needs God's sovereign intervention to deal with his rebellion. Notice the cry of David as he begs God, look at it, look at it in the text, blot out, blot out my sin, which means to erase the record, or better yet, to scrape away his sin so that his slate is completely clean again. It paints a comprehensive, a comprehensive picture of absolute and complete removal of all sin. David begs God then next to wash away his iniquity, which speaks of the idea of God fully purging David of all wickedness, much like a person in that day would, would wash their clothes fervently by rubbing them together violently or beating them on rocks until the stains are removed. That's what David is asking for. Wash me thoroughly, completely purge all wickedness from me. David requests next that God would, you see it in the text, cleanse away his sin, which again speaks of fully disinfecting, utterly removing any vestiges of sin from David's life. Do not miss how comprehensive David is in his description of his personal wickedness. This is so helpful, dear loved ones. Do not miss this. We tend to repent. Lord, forgive me. I'm sorry. You understand that, right? It tends to be the pattern of our repentance. Do you see that in this text? David is pleading with great specificity here. He is clear. He is comprehensive. He is broken. Watch how he describes his sin. He is following what John will tell us in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, homilegeo, if we say the same things about our sin that God says, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. David is doing that. He is crying out to God and describing his sin the same way that God sees it and describes it. Don't miss it. Notice first, transgressions. First notice, it's plural, not singular. The term here, transgressions, carries the idea of intentionally partaking in rebellious acts. All sin, dear loved ones, all sin is always cosmic treason. Cosmic treason, for it is always willful rebellion against the good and holy God of all the earth. The next term David uses is iniquity. This carries the idea of departing from the good way, departing from the good way of the Lord, and thus bringing guilt upon yourself. It means to go astray and thus become guilty. At the core, at the core of sin is mankind's guilt before God. Never, ever minimize guilt in your evangelism. There's a movement among 
the modern church that wants to remove guilt from the gospel. You remove guilt, you remove the gospel. David is clear. He's a guilty man. The last term, you see it in the text. Look at it. Sin carries the idea, and you'll know this, you'll know this, missing the mark, right? We understand that. Missing the mark as set by God. What does that mean? The mark, the goal for us as his created beings. The goal for us is what? The glory of God. He created us for his glory. He created us to serve and worship him. And we have missed the mark. That does not mean, dear loved ones, you know, the mark's right back there, the bullseye, and I'm like two centimeters off. Listen, we understand the shooting the arrow, right, at the mark. And we use that a lot of times when we describe sin. Listen, we don't just miss the bullseye. We turn around and we're aiming at a whole nother target. That's what he's describing. We miss the goal. We miss the goal of God's glory because we have rejected it in the pursuit of self-glory. Do you see it? Watch this. Don't miss it. What has David just said to God about his sin? He has just said, God, I'm a rebel because I've transgressed. God, I'm a criminal because I'm guilty. And God, I'm a thief because I've been stealing your glory for myself. Do you see the the depth of this desperate cry? Dear loved ones, is this how your repentance looks? Have you ever cried out to God in destitute desperation where God is your only hope and help? Have you cried out to God driven by his character of mercy and grace? Have you ever cried out to God for mercy? Comprehensively giving all your sin to Him. Or have you cried out to God for this sin over here while you coddle this sin over there? Notice it's a comprehensive, not a partial repentance. Because if we understand repentance rightly, There is no such thing as partial repentance that's acceptable to God. David's cry was comprehensive. He begs God to blot out his transgression as a rebel. He begs God to remove his guilt as a criminal. He begs God to cleanse away his his sin as a thief. This cry of David is so helpful for us even as Christians because it's exactly what we see in Luke 18, 13. When the tax collector He cried out desperately. He cries out respectfully. He cries out fully. And what what does God say about him? That's the man that goes home righteous. Dear loved ones, we need this. We need to sit and soak on this. Well, that's the cry of the penitent. Let's move on now. Number two, verses three to six. Let's see the confession. That's just the cry. David's just crying out to the Lord. He's going to take it even further. He's going to go even deeper. He's going to get even more specific. The next part of David's prayer, we can see he begins to drill down further into what he just said in verses 1 and 2. As David now gives some further reasons or better yet explanations for why he is begging God for forgiveness. 
It is here in verses 3 to 6 that we can see one of the clearest examples of biblical confession as David not only declares his personal responsibility for his rebellion, but he also declares that he is the personal source of it, being his own wicked heart. This is a deep and honest confession that should confront all of us. Let's look at it as we consider three, three specific descriptions of this confession. First, notice in verse three, it is a humble confession. David's humility and broken, his humility is clear as he is broken before God. And his brokenness now comes front and center. David is not trying to protect himself in this confession, but he is fully exposing himself as he demonstrates no pretense in this admission of sin. Notice all the personal pronouns here and that have already been used in verse 1 and 2. David is clear that it is his sin, my sin, my sin alone. He repeats it over and over and over again. David is clear it is his sin and no one else's sin. David and David alone is to blame for all that happened. There are no excuses. David is not like Adam, the woman. David is like the man. It's me. I tell my children, told them from birth, I keep telling them, there are no buts in this house. When you confess and you repent, I don't want to hear a but, I don't want to hear an and, I don't want to hear an if. Because if you do, your repentance is done. When you repent, when you ask for forgiveness, you, you own it. That's genuine repentance. My seven-year-old will have the, he, he, will, he will be disciplined, and then he'll immediately try to tell me how it's his brother's fault. And then he'll be disciplined again. And the whole time I'm there going, I do the same thing, don't I? Oh, we need to learn this, dear loved ones. We need to be marked by humble confession. True repentance never makes any excuses. And that is one reason, dear loved ones, why as a pastor, I believe true repentance is actually very rare. It is very rare. As a pastor, it is rare for me to see real, genuine confession. But I have often witnessed excuse-laden confession. In the Hebrew word order here in our text, it is stark. As the sins in verse 3 are fronted before the verb. And thus for emphasis, again, showing what I'm saying. Literally in Hebrew, it starts out like this. My transgressions, I know. My sin is in front of me continually. The verb is coupled with another personal pronoun, which is actually redundant for more humility of emphasis here. As it actually reads in the Hebrew, I, I myself know this. And the verb to know speaks of personal acknowledgement and admission that never goes away. Because as David says so clearly, this reality of his sin is always continually in his face. Meaning, it sits before him day and night. He can't get away from it. David desperately seeks forgiveness. So he then humbly confesses all of it. Full responsibility for his sin. 
David deeply desires cleansing. Therefore, David does not try to cover any part of his sin, but he humbly owns it all. This is not only a humble confession, but also, look at verse 4, a clear confession. In verse 4, David declares emphatically that his treachery was really only in one direction, against God alone. This is massive in seeing sin rightly and confessing sin clearly. David is not denying that his wickedness involves sinning against everyone else involved. He's not denying that. He knows he sinned against Bathsheba, against Uriah, against Joab, against his whole family, against his whole army, against the entire nation. David knows that. But he also acknowledges here the deep doctrinal truth that helps drive sound confession. All sin, dear loved ones, is always ultimately against God alone. Listen, sin is not only evil in the sight of God, but it is evil done in a direct attack against God. This is sin. But because we have so often a comfortable view of sin, we sugarcoat it in how we describe it. When we sin, we are attacking God and his glory. And David gets that. Against you and you alone. The, he the ESV follows the Hebrew word order here rightly. Fronting the fact where it says literally against you, you only have I sinned. And David is right and clear. And saying this, because that's what the Bible teaches. It was God who commanded David not to covet another man's wife, was it not? It was God who commanded David not to lie. It was God who commanded David not to steal. It was God who commanded David not to bear false witness. It was God who commanded David not to murder. It was God who commanded David not to commit adultery. And yet, without question, just in a conservative account, David breaks at least five of the Ten Commandments here against God. Think about it. All sin in some form or fashion is tethered to being, dear loved ones, you ready? Discontent with God. That's what's going on here. David was discontent with God. He was discontent with who God is. He was discontent with what God had given. He was discontent with what God had promised. He was discontent with what God had provided. David was above all else discontent with all that God had graciously given David. And so David selfishly wanted more. Dear loved ones, this is often at the root of so much of our sin. Not just discontentment, discontentment with God. Isn't that horrible? And you say, I don't know, Pastor, that's, that, you're stretching the text there. I mean, it doesn't really say that. No, that's exactly what the text says. You can go over and read it later in 2 Samuel 12, 7 and 8, and that is exactly how Nathan confronts David. When God himself says, David, why did you do this? If you wanted another wife, I would have given a wife to you. David, all you had to do was ask. I gave you this. I gave you that. I gave you the throne. I made you king. I, I made this covenant with you. David, I gave you everything. And if you wanted more, I would have given it to you. All you needed to do was ask. He was discontent. 
Listen, dear loved ones, confession becomes consecrated when it is not only rooted in seeing the evil of sin, but also seeing sin as a direct blasphemous assault on God Almighty, which is how Nathan ends his confrontation with David in 2 Samuel 12, 13. You have utterly scorned God, he tells him. Never forget that every time we sin, whether we realize it or not, passively or aggressively, we shake our fists in open defiance against God and His goodness. That's what Isaiah 1-2 says. That's what Isaiah 66-24 says. That's what Romans 8-7 says. That's what Revelation 16 demonstrates during the tribulation. When, the tribu- when during the tribulation, the world knows that it is Christ who is heaping upon the world all the tribulations. They know it comes from heaven. And the angels are flying through the heavens preaching the gospel saying, repent, repent, repent. And you know what the world does? They turn to God and they literally, three different times, Revelation, they shake their fist at God and say, we will not repent. Dear loved ones, we may look at the world and say that is nasty, but we need to look at our heart and say, that's what we do every time we sin. Scary. Don't miss it. David is clear in his confession as seen in verse 4 when he says that God is right to judge David. God is right to call him out for his evil acts. David is saying, God, you are free and right to do whatever you deem best in judging me, for I only deserve wrath, not mercy. Consider how David's confession, don't miss it, dear loved ones, David's confession is not marked by challenging God, but by submitting to God to do whatever God deems justified and right. When I've seen real, genuine confession, I've watched people. I've seen it in my own heart, and I've seen it in those I shepherd. And they will come, and they don't care about the consequences. They don't care who knows about it. All they want is to be done with it. They want to be right with God. I don't care, pastor. Church discipline, whatever. Pastor, just help me be done with it. I want to be right with God. That's what David is showing here. Oh, it's, it's so encouraging because it's so helpful because this is what we need. David does not challenge God. David submits to God. David is not like, here you go, Cain. Do you remember Cain? David's confronted by Nathan, and David submits to God. Cain is confronted by God, and Cain challenges God in arrogant pride. You can read about that in Genesis 4.13. True confession is always marked by a submissive heart, willing to accept whatever consequences come and whatever judgment or discipline God brings. 2 Corinthians 7.11 speaks that clearly. Do you see, dear loved ones, what is missing in David's confession? No mention whatsoever about his consequences or the judgment that God had already brought and might even bring. The baby died. The sword of division and discord would never leave his house, and David doesn't even bring it up. Why? Here's why. Because David is more aggravated over his sin against God and not about his temporal consequences as a result of his sin. 
Sadly, most confession is driven by the personal results of sin on our lives instead of the reality of the wickedness of our sin being a direct attack against holy God. David's confession is deeply rooted in his deep concern for God and not simply his personal care for himself. We not only see a humble and clear confession, but now, verses 5 and 6, we see a complete confession. Here in verses 5 and 6, David drives his repentance further as he confesses not only his act of sin against God, but the fact that he actually is the source of his sin. It's not just his act, but it's his attitude. David is confessing the sinful condition that drives his sinful actions. His heart, his sinful, wicked heart is behind all of his wicked acts. And this is huge. David, you know this, David is saying, I'm not a sinner because I sin, but I sin because I'm a sinner through and through in every ounce of my being. And I have been that way since conception, David says. So far in this confession, we have seen David say, Lord, I'm broken emotionally, verse 3. I'm broken relationally, verse 4. And now David will say, I'm broken conditionally, verses 5 and 6. Here in verses 5 and 6, David goes to the heart of his sin problem, and it's his sinful heart. Notice in verse 5, we see the bold interjection translated here as behold, which is meant to get attention for emphasis. David is cut to his core about what he just declared at the end of verse 4 with God's just and blameless judgments against David's intentional and perverted wickedness. Therefore, David is not going to excuse his rebellion against God, but he further describes the depth of it, the source of it. David is saying, I've been rebelling from you from birth. David is not in any way saying his mother conceived him in some sinful act, but that he, David himself, has been sinful from the time life began at conception. David is in no way blaming God, but is further demonstrating to God a broken, humble, honest heart of repentance. Remember Isaiah 64, 6 and 7 makes the same reality clear. All of us in our sin, speaking of Israel and by implication, all of humanity, we have all gone astray. We have all gone our way and we have all become what? Unclean is the word, meaning defiled by our sin as a leper was defiled by his disease. As Romans 3, 10 to 18 makes clear, no one seeks after God because we have all turned away from God. Genesis 6, 5, Genesis 8, 21 makes it clear. Man in his nature, his fallen nature, his heart, his control center, his inner bent is always toward evil continually from youth. Above all else, Jesus says emphatically the same reality. All of our sinful thoughts, all of our sinful attitudes, all of our sinful actions that we can ever do or will ever do will always come from one place and one place alone, our own depraved hearts. Mark 7, 14 to 23. David is confessing the complete depth of his depravity here. John Calvin said it so clearly. We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all of our actions are under its influence, unquote. This is huge. 
and displays not only a sound understanding of how sin works, as James chapter 1, 13 and 14 shows, but also this understanding will now drive David as he begs God throughout the rest of the psalm now. He begs him in verse 6, you'll see another behold, and it's meant to get, get your attention. And he's going to beg God to begin to do what David desperately needs done, what David in and of himself cannot, can, cannot do. David says, I'm sinful to the core, but God, you designed me to be a man where truth reigns in my inward being. But instead, David says, I'm infected with sin in the depths of my heart. But God delights and God desires for David that truth would rule in his heart. But David delighted in the path of sin, not the path of truth. Yet David knows the hope. David knows the hope that God will teach him wisdom, meaning God will teach him how to live by truth in his heart. Thus we see in verse 6, God's delight for David to be a man of truth now becomes David's desire that drives the rest of the psalm. David will now call upon God not only to forgive him, but also to transform him in his inner being, from the inside out, meaning the depths of his heart, so that he might walk in truth instead of walking in sin. This is the beauty, dear loved ones, of 1 John 1, 9, where God not only is faithful to forgive us of all our sins, but as we humbly confess, dear loved ones, what does the passage say? He also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He purges it out. He washes it away. He strips it off. The filth that comes with our sin is gone. The pollution is removed. David will go after this deep cleansing and renewal in verses 7 to 12. But as I said, we don't have time to go further. Does this kind of confession mark your repentance? David is teaching us the way. He said in Psalm 51, 13, God, if you forgive me, God, if you cleanse me, God, if you transform me, I will teach sinners your way. Isn't that what he's been doing for us this morning? The fulfillment of what he asked God is doing. He will teach them the mark that true repentance is marked by humble confession, clear confession, and complete confession. But sadly, often we are marked by prideful confession instead of humble confession, ambiguous confession instead of clear confession, partial confession instead of complete confession. What does that mean? It means confessing sin with excuses. It means confessing sin in generalities. It means confessing some sin while hiding, to, hiding on to other sins. Holding on to some sin in your heart while seeming to confess other sins. Listen, partial confession where known ongoing sin is left untouched is never acceptable to God. You can read about that in Psalm 68, 17, and 18. You cannot confess sin while at the same time covering your own sin. God says, I won't listen to it. But I'd harbored sin in my heart, God will not hear that kind of confession. That is a complete contradiction of biblical confession. The cry of the penitent, verses 1 and 2. The confession of the penitent, 3 and 6. Now, 
A sermon like this is hard, I know. I actually prayed for quite some time on what to bring to you. Lest you think I just, I didn't preach this this morning. I preached a whole nother sermon. So this isn't me rolling out of that church and coming over here and plug and play. If you think that, you don't know me. I prayed for you. I know the struggle you're going through, the difficulty you're in right now searching for your next pastor. It's hard. Not to scare you, but the church I'm at that I, that I went to seven years ago, they were without a pastor before me almost five years. I do not pray that for you. God forbid. But it's hard. But I also know this. Times like this, sin begins to creep into the camp. Sin begins to sneak in. We begin to overlook that which should never be overlooked. We begin to allow things in our heart that we should never allow. We begin to allow conversations and things to be said we should never allow. And that's what the evil one wants. And sadly, dear loved ones, that's what our hearts want. But that's not what the king of glory wants. Yes, you don't have a shepherd, but that is not an excuse to allow sin in the camp. I brought this because I felt like this is what you could use to be strengthened, to be reminded, to be encouraged, to stay the course, to keep confessing, to keep short accounts with God, to keep taking those quote-unquote little sins to God so that those quote-unquote big sins can never come into your life. I'm going to take everything I've said to you this morning. I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you and give you, as I wrap this up in a final application, here you go. Pull out your pencils, pull out your phones. You're going to want to write this down. I'm telling you, this has helped me throughout the years. Six ways to fight indwelling sin through penitent prayer. I'm going to give this to you in simple two word phrases so you can nail this in like two minutes. Are you ready? Have I overstepped my time, Gabe? Okay. Good. I don't know what I've done if he said yes. <laughs> Six steps to fight indwelling sin through penitent prayer. Number one, this is what we've learned. See it. See it. Look honestly at your heart and look honestly at the sin that exists there. You have to learn to see your sin honestly. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to cover it. See it for what it is. The evil, the rebellion, the wickedness, the attack against God. If you're going to confess sin, repent of sin rightfully, it begins with seeing it rightly. Number two, this is hard. Seeing it's one thing. Number two, you must own it. This, this is where the rubber meets the road, if we're honest, especially in a pastor's heart. You must own it. You can't just see it. You also have to own it. That means you can't blame it on others. It is yours and yours alone. Taking full responsibility for your sin without blaming others is a massive step forward in true confession. You must see it. You must own it. Number three, you must hate it. Hate it. Be completely opposed to any presence of sin in your life. Dear loved ones, see it as the black mamba of your life. I hate snakes. 
Some of you love snakes. Forgive me. I've been around snakes a lot. I'm an outdoors guy, so I've held them. I've been around them. I, I travel quite a bit on missions trips, and I've been to Africa many times. And I was out in the bush in Africa one time. We were preaching in multiple churches way out in the bush, and these, I think it's the baobab trees. They're amazing, these massive trees. And I was this tree was gigantic. And I was drawn into it, and I'm checking it out. I'm taking pictures of it. And my interpreter, sweet young guy, is like, Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt. You see all those black mamba holes right there by the tree? And I'm like, whoa. I'm like, why didn't you stop me going over there? Listen, the black mamba's like the worst, scariest, wicked snake on the planet. All of you nature-loving people, I know you can correct me when I'm wrong. That thing will kill you in a heartbeat. I have learned in my life to see my sin as the black mamba. Guess what I'm not doing? Crawling in my bed with a black mamba. Guess what I'm not doing? coddling the black mamba. Guess what I'm doing when I see the black mamba? I'm running. I'm pulling out the hatchet, the shotgun, the tank, whatever I got to do. You got to hate it. But don't just hate it for what it is, the scary black mamba. No, it's, it's far greater than that. Hate it for who it's against, dear loved ones. Holy God. It's the black mamba that we throw at God. No, God forbid, we hate it. You see it, you own it, you hate it. Number four, you confess it. You confess it. You say what God says about your sin. You take it to him. You cry out to him for mercy and you bring it all to him. You confess it. You don't hold it back. You don't give some of it. You give all of it. Number five. You forsake it. You forsake it. It's not enough to confess sin while you continue to hang around with sin. You got to confess it to the Lord and you got to run from it. You got to forsake it. You got to leave it behind you. You got to reject your sin. You got to go in another direction. That's forsaking it. That's what, that's the heart of true repentance. You confess it and you turn away and you leave that sin behind. You see it, you own it, you hate it, you confess it, you forsake it. And number six, dear loved ones, this is where we often go wrong as believers. I train a lot of men and they'll often say, pastor, why am I still struggling with sin? Why do I have this? Why do I have that? And well, part of it is because it's our lot, right? It's in the struggle that we're sanctified and we grow, praise the Lord. But oftentimes in our confession and our repentance, we stop at forsaking it. Dear loved ones, that never works because the Bible is clear. We must forsake it and then we must replace it. Replace it. Not enough to forsake it. You must begin. You must stop doing what's wrong and start doing what's right. You must stop thinking lustful, evil thoughts and you must start dwelling on the word of Christ. You replace it. This is what Paul said over and over again. We must put off and put on. And only if we put off while putting on does it work as God designed it to work. It's hard. It demands everything we got. It demands utter dependence on the Holy Spirit because without him, we're done. It demands complete obedience to the word. We never do that, so we're constantly confessing and repenting. Charles Spurgeon said, 
all Christians should be ever repenting because they're ever sinning. Repentance is our way of life. This is how we live. Not for salvation. That's once and done for all, praise the Lord. But for that renewed fellowship, for that reality of cleansing and walking with God in sweet communion. This is, dear loved ones, six steps to fight indwelling sin through repentant prayer. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's what you need to know. Same steps for you to come to Christ. You must see your sin for what it is. You must own your sin for what it is. You must hate your sin for what it brings and who it's against. You must go now to Christ and confess your sins to Him and Him alone. Listen, don't be like Judas. He saw his sin. He even partially owned his sin. And he even, what? Confessed his sin, but not to Christ, not to God, not to Yahweh, to the religious leaders. And he didn't forsake it. He picked it back up and he didn't replace it. Don't be like that. See your sin, own it, hate it, confess it, forsake it. Take up your cross, the call of the gospel. Take up your cross, deny yourself, die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Replace following yourself, which is what all sin is, and start following Christ. That's the call of the gospel. That's the call of the Christian life. This is how we live. And this is what we must do. And this, dear loved ones, is what David has taught us this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. We thank you for the blessing of it. And dear Lord, we've only heard it, but now we need to live it. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move in our hearts, convict us where we need convicting, comfort us where we need comforting, and transform us where we need conforming even more into the image of Christ, we pray. For your glory and your honor alone, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.